Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, Tom. Welcome back to the hedge. Hey, Russ. The globe is in the back. I don't see any dead plants. Oh, oh here the comes the dead plants. It's a very living <laughs> plant. Yeah. It is. See? It's, so, it's, is it real or is it? Plastic? Oh, it's real. It's real. <laughs> I just wonder sometimes. And today we have with us Yvonne, who has no plants behind her. She just has a gray wall. It's so boring. Yeah. I don't know what to do. I think the heat being on in the winter, that's what I'm blaming it on. It has made the air very dry. <laughs> and my plants uh, yeah. have not fared so well since about this time. The snake made me do it. <laughs> Blame something. Yes. Your oblique Genesis yeah, 3 can, reference. <laughs> Your oblique Genesis 3 yeah, reference yeah, yeah. for the day. So today we are joined by Brian Keys again. And he wants to talk to us about being schizophrenic. Thank you for that, Russ. <laughs> um, I found a quote in the uh, autobiography of Michael Collins, first a U.S. Air Force uh, test pilot and then an Apollo astronaut, probably one of the most famous guys you've never, uh, you know you've heard of, but you just can't place. He was the uh, third guy in Apollo 11 behind Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. And I found a quote of when he was testing uh, in the early 60s the, uh, some of the pilot, some of the aircrafts for the Air Force. And he was going through the, um, what he's thinking and what they're going through to test those aircrafts. And in that, I thought, I think this goes for um, the way we operate uh, networking gear and the way we design software nowadays. So. I think it's still very relevant. So what was the quote exactly for everybody? Okay. Uh, do you want me to read it? It's kind of long. It's too long. No, what, no, just the general idea. What's, what's, the, what's the general idea? I mean, all the different things that he's thinking about, what him as an experienced pilot is thinking. He's trying to put himself in the shoes of a beginning pilot. And then when there are warning lights that come on, how many warning lights should they allow? Should they have? Should it be a caution? Should it be a little note? And then if we allow all these notes, um, I think that it ends with, if we're going to have a note for everything that you need to know, it's going to be the size of a phone book. So so really he's talking about how do we filter the right. information we need? How do we know what's important? And how do we manage this crazy uh, onslaught of data in a very intense situation? Would that um, be a summary? Yeah, and also he uh, has a little bit of an argument with the project manager about how when to ship and uh, when to go back and make changes. And there's a lot of good stuff in there. So where does schizophrenia come in? Uh, schizophrenia is where he's trying to think of himself as the uh, experienced, one of the best pilots in the Air Force, but then also trying to think about the, uh, the new lieutenant who uh, it's his first or second flight. Uh, and he's trying to hold those two uh, opposing things in his brain at the same time. And I think that's what uh, what Russ zeroed in on. Gotcha. <laughs> test pilots. Test pilots have to have a touch of schizophrenia. That's that's his statement in the very beginning of his of the long quote you're talking about there, Brian. 
It's really interesting because I do think as network engineers, we face many of the same sorts of problems. Just looking at the schizophrenia issue, we have to think about not only what we would do as an experienced network engineer, but the guy who's working on it at two o'clock in the morning trying to figure out how to fix it. The tech engineer who is at two o'clock in the morning trying to learn our network so they can help us fix it. And then the user who really doesn't know anything about the network, who just wants it to work and just wants to get data from here to there. And what does it look like from their perspective? And I think, unfortunately, we don't do a very good job of doing all of those things if we even try to do them. The thing I, that I uh, latched onto when I was reading it was the, was the interaction between uh, just the, the concept of safety um, you know, if you, you, you know, he, in his quote, he talks about how, well, there's the, you know, if the canopy jettison handle is sticking out too far, what happens if you snag it with your flight suit? Well, that could, that could be potentially fatal and you can solve that with design. Um, or you could just leave it and put a big orange sticker on it and say, don't get your flight suit, uh, you know, caught here. And the idea of a balance between, um, safety and, uh, I don't know what you would call it, elegance or completeness of design or something. Um, you know, I, I have seen networks experience issues because of this this very thing because someone built it in a certain way expecting the operator to have a certain awareness of the environment and it turns out that that our operator didn't have that awareness at two in the morning or whenever um and some bad things happened so you know i when we see those things happen in uh, user interface design all the time i get really frustrated sometimes when um you know you'll have like two options right beside one another one will be disable and the next one will be delete. They start with the same letter. They're right next to one another. And when you look at them, they appear to be somewhat equivalent in the interface design. But disable and delete are two very different functions. And especially if there isn't a built-in, are you sure you want to do this? That can be a pretty dangerous, um, have, have a pretty bad outcome. <laughs> And it's and it's just that's just user interface design. But uh, one of the things that I'm I'm seeing here in this quote, um, it's talking about um, when something's not right, what do you do? And and he says on the one hand, perhaps you do nothing, but then on the other, maybe it should go back to the factory for expensive and time-consuming modifications. How do you make that um, make that distinction? And I think one of the things that I notice as I get a little older. And especially as I work with my little kids, like my son and I have been playing a game together on the tablet. And like, as soon as something pops up, he wants to click it. And I'm like, wait, bud, let's look at it. Let's see what it says. Let's figure out what the right thing to do here. And it's like, I mean, he can't read. So it pops up and he's just like, hit the button. And I'm like, no, wait, you just sold everything. Now we got to go grow a bunch more crops because you destroyed our game. And uh, and I think, <laughs> That's honestly, a pretty button. <laughs> Well, yeah, but 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 that <laughs> happens in our technology too, right? There's a thing, and there's an alert, and we have to make it go away. And 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 instead of sitting there thinking about it a little bit, we just make it go away, or we oh, I know what that is, and we and we don't stop and think. Um, that's been my hobby horse. That's a pretty good hobby horse, actually. I like yeah. that hobby horse, Yvonne. That's that's good, and, and I think you're right. I think that we do this a lot. We see. Um, I, I remember going to a, a conference one time, and I don't remember what the company, who the company was, but they had this really neat thing 
where they had a traffic signal uh, sitting in their booth. And you could buy said traffic signal or a similar one just like it. And when your SNMP turned a particular device red, it would change the traffic signal color from green to yellow to red, depending on the status of the overall network or the system. And I thought, dude, <laughs> it would be red all the time <laughs> and nobody would pay any attention to it after a while. It, but it also gamifies it in a way where you feel like you have to make it green. And like, you don't always have to make it green. Okay. Come on. You just, you don't, you just don't have to fix everything. And I think that's one of the downsides of being an engineer that drives people at a personal level crazy even is that well, I, I just got to fix everything. This is, this is all about what, what are our <laughs> filters? Like what series of filters do we set up and what really matters and what's our priority? And, um, and those are not easy questions to answer. And unless you step back and look at a system or, you know, even your life as a whole and figure out what things really matter and then you prioritize, then when a thing happens, you have to place that in the scheme of all the other things that happen and figure out whether it's important or not. And I do think sometimes we have to make a distinction between what's a design problem and what's a nuisance. And a lot of things can be fixed by design. I used to work for a civil engineering firm and they talked a lot about um, margins on the road um, and if you look back, when we started painting that white line on the uh, in in the states on the right hand side of the road, where you could see the edge of the road at night, traffic incidents went down. It's a simple thing. It's design changes that you can make to make things easier. Um, and when we talk about code, that can be documentation, right? Comments, um, you know, things like you know, if there's a VLAN interface that really doesn't need to have an IP on it because things are going to route if you put an IP on that interface and it, it could get bad because you need segmentation there, make a comment and like put in the description, do not IP. It, things like that. Um, you can build guardrails for yourself that make it easier not only for you, but the next guy at 3 a.m. when you're in the middle of an outage. Yeah. Right, right. But there are two other pieces to that. The first of the other pieces is there's always a trade-off. If you haven't found the trade-offs, you haven't looked hard enough, right? Which we were just talking about before we started recording. And that we don't think about those trade-offs. We just go off and do things with a single-minded objective to get something done. But then the trade-off is still there whether or not we think about it. And so you can fix a lot of things with design but sometimes you're doing things that are breaking something else and you don't know it because you're not focused on it. So you're fixing one thing and breaking something else. Like in the example that you gave uh, or that's given in the book here, Brian, maybe making the, the, the handle a little bit smaller would make it where your uniform doesn't catch on it every time you jump out of the airplane and risk throwing, a, throwing the ejection seat out of the airplane behind you and killing somebody or destroying millions of dollars worth of equipment. On the other hand, if you make it too small, maybe you can't find it when you need to find it and you need to eject and you can't. It's down there somewhere. <laughs> it's down there somewhere. Can I tell you how long it took me to find the gas door opener on my daughter's car when we first bought it? Because it was, it was horrible. 
this this makes me think there is a paper i don't know maybe it's just a blog post um how complex systems fail that i read a little while ago and it just reminds me of two of the really important points in there one that complex systems run in degraded mode and second catastrophe is always just around the corner um th- those are things that i think it's really important to grasp that and and come to terms with that before you can't those two facts before you can really like like Yvonne was saying make priorities about what you're going to work on because you um, complex systems you they, I mean I I and I believe that it is a truth that complex systems are running in degraded mode it's never going to be perfect uh, and the bigger and the more complex it gets the the more degraded it gets but um, you know presumably you're making enough money with it that it doesn't matter that it's not perfect um, I think that's and and catastrophe is always just around the corner. Um, uh, that's, that's true of pretty much every system I've ever worked on. I don't, I don't know about you guys. Well, and I think that the, the people that are best at running reliable systems across the world, they accept that outages will happen. Now they're constantly working to reduce the outages, to understand the outages, um, and to uh, adjust their systems to cope with those, um, and determine what the problems are. But I've, I've worked in organizations where it's like, that leadership just says, well, it, it can just never go down. That, that is, that's a Pollyanna view that actually doesn't help things stay up because you have to confront reality to be able to make things better. And, and saying that a system can never go down is, is just not realistic. You can get pretty darn close um, to never, but it's, you know, you're, you're approaching a, a limit there. There's a meme where the guy looks really excited. Our core switch has been up for 10 years. And then in the next frame, he goes, oh, my goodness, our core switch doesn't have any security updates for 10 years. <laughs> so there's a trade-off. Yeah, well, and, and so and those all of those things have to be configured into the design of the system as a whole. If, if your system is a core switch to run the entire environment, um, then, then you have a design problem, right? Because you haven't considered... Things like upgrades and reliability, and please don't talk about in-service software upgrades. Um, <laughs> that's not an answer. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Far too often we think it is, however, which which is just throwing complexity off on somebody else is all it is. It's, it's just my network needs to be up all the time, so you need to make equipment that will never fail. Well, no, that's not the way it really works. <laughs> that, to me, saying... The, the network will always be up. This is what I pay you people for. Keep it always up. It's it's kind of like saying, I want a car that's built so well that it doesn't need crumple zones or airbags. Like, I, I would not buy a car that doesn't have those. And even if somebody said, oh, yeah, just take, uh, you know, $5,000 off the price. I, I, I'm not sure that I would go for that. And, I, I you know, I, I think we have to build the equivalent of crumple zones and airbags into our designs, into our networks. They have to be able to fail gracefully um, and... The, the idea that things will never go down, I think, gets in the way of making a system really reliable anyway. There's another piece in here I find really interesting where he argues, he's talking about arguing with the program manager, arguing for the case for the pilot at the expense of the project manager's precious schedule. Now, <clears throat> there is something to be said here that maybe we don't do that enough as network engineers. Maybe we don't argue for our users enough against management. Or maybe it's the other way around. We don't argue enough for the simplicity of the network against the application developer who's just saying, I'll just solve this in the network. Just go, just who cares? 
you know, it's just another layer two connection. You already have a thousand of them. Just a thousand and one doesn't make any difference. So I don't know. It just seems that just that just struck me as something that I think I see a lot more in the network world than people might realize. I saw that same quote, and uh, or maybe now I'm looking at a different piece, but it, I also saw that uh, where it's uh, you want to make it easy for everybody to use, but at the same time, there are advanced things you want to do. So you want to you want to allow for nerd knobs and uh, some advanced tweaking, but you want to do it responsibly. And the way we could do that in user interface design is you have a, you know an advanced box where the things that you don't tinker, need, most people don't need to tinker with are not in plain sight. You can do that in the physical world with, with panels or doors or some sort of mechanism to keep the complicated stuff from, from being easily um, hit or pushed or turned or, or something like that, right? I mean, but again, that goes back to, um, and, and I think that you, there's an understanding the user, which I see now as a, a, a huge challenge for people that make um, anything, but, but, you know, including technology. What you design to do, and Russ has said this over and over, is, not, is often not how it ends up getting used. And so understanding how it is used over time and the impacts that that has, not only on the overall system, but the user um, is pretty paramount. And that just takes empathy and careful observation, which are two skills, soft skills, that uh, we often don't pay much attention to in our world. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. We just, we just assume that the user is going to be as adroit at using the system that we are and have the same goals that we had when we designed the system or what we thought the user's goals were going to be. And it's not really what they are. I mean, you go onto any construction site and you will find wrenches being used as hammers. I mean, it, technology will be used for what it can be used for, not for what you've designed it to be used for. So, and, and I think this brings up a, a, a secondary problem here in that we often think that through the use of AI and automation, we can sweep this complexity and these nerd knobs under the rug and make it look simple, even though it's really not, and make it, oh, oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be fine because we've given them AI that will take care of this for them, or we've given them uh, you know, some sort of user interface that will make it look simple for them. This hiding the complexity doesn't always result in what you think it's going to result in. Sometimes it's worse. <laughs> well, uh, also there's there's huge value in automation, not not just because of the right. speed, but because of the consistency you get when you automate something. Even if right. it's wrong, it's the same way every time, um, which is important. That's right. But I mean, just think of that as another layer of abstraction. And if you've read the paper right. and the law of leaky abstractions, you know that all abstractions leak, right, Russ? Um, um, That's I'm right. just being your mini me at this point. Um, but, <laughs> and, and so you just have to be aware of that and it doesn't res remove the responsibility to understand the system. It does have some valuable benefits that I, I think our systems are so big and complex. Now we cannot maintain them without those kinds of tools. At the same time, those can't replace understanding how the system works, um, as a whole. So this, this leads to one of my hobby horses, which is, um, yes, abstractions are going to leak, 
Um, but you are far better positioned to understand how, first of all, how, how it leaked. And second of all, what do you need to do now to compensate for that? You're far better positioned to do those things if you're the one who built the abstraction. So when you go consume an abstraction that some, that a vendor wrote for you or that, or that somebody else, somebody else built, um, you get a certain amount of value out of that and in, in the, in the form of convenience that you didn't have to do all that work. Um, but you also gave up the understanding of the system that, that it's, it's hard to get that understanding without having done it. And, and I think that we have enough software and enough understanding now that we can build our own abstractions. Uh, and I, and I, that's something that I wish more, um, organizations would do that they would at least try, um, instead of saying we have to buy product X to do this abstraction for us. Well, wh why don't you try, uh, to do it yourself? Um, and then you, you might find out that you understand the system better. Well, I, I know you'll find, you'll understand the system better after having done that. And it might not be as hard as you thought it was. I don't know. I just, I think there's a lot of value in building your own so there, are, so there are two things there, though, Tom. First is that it's organizational knowledge rather than personal knowledge, I hope you're talking about, because organizational. Yes, organizational. Right. Yep. Because the second thing you run into there is personally, you as a person can't handle that much. I know we all think we're brilliant, right. but there is this, the first corollary to Keith's law, which is that you can understand the system, you can understand your part of the system, and you can understand a little bit of the pieces that connect to the, your part of the system and everything beyond that is just rumor and pop psychology. And so, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. But even, but even understanding just that, I think puts you pretty far ahead that farther ahead than if you had uh, purchased all of the abstractions, even though you can't really, one mind can't comprehend it all. The fact that the organization built the abstraction, I still think is a net gain. Yeah. Um, so there's but, organizational yeah. knowledge, not necessarily individual knowledge is still something that you would consider to be a net positive. Right. But which takes its own effort, right? People have to be willing to communicate and collaborate with each other in order to do this. You can't, you can't build these abstractions by sliding pizza under the door to one engineer anymore. It's they're they're not only are they too big, um, that, and that person's a single point of failure. It requires multiple minds, I believe, to build these systems, right? Right. And I was going to, I was going to follow up what Tom was saying was that that works at a certain organizational size and scale where, and you have to have an organizational will to, uh, to make that happen. Yeah. If, if, if you yep. have uh, organizational leadership that doesn't value engineering talent or that really, um, wants to rely on the vendor and doesn't want to take ownership, that never works. So I, I just want to put a plug in to say it's important to understand your organization before you embark on an endeavor like that, because you have to have executive sponsorship to drive those kinds of initiatives to be sure that they last and live and get the resources they need. So I, I agree that there's tons of value there for an organization, um, but you can't do it alone. And I think that's also what Tom is saying. So, so let's turn the question around a little bit and say, all right, as a network engineer, as somebody who works on networks, builds, designs, architects, whatever you want to call it, networks, how do we, how do we as individuals think about some of these things so that we can be part of the solution rather than just being people who complain about it or say this is real? Like, how do I think about my users in a way that I think Think about the way they consume the network and make it simpler for them. Uh, just starting, just starting right there. What can I do as a network engineer to think about my users in a way that allows them to consume the network more easily? 
I think an application focus helps a lot, especially when you're when you're building networks specifically. Um, you're so consumed with the control plane that you forget sometimes about how the just because you have to be, you have to be in your silo in order to do good work. Sometimes I think we forget about how is the application going to see this. I think it, it's an important perspective shift to say, okay, now now I'm uh, some service running over TLS, whatever. Uh, how how does this affect my life and and the thought process of walking through it? Just similar to how we do with failure modes, right? When we design something, we sit and look at it and we think, okay, if this fails, what happens to the system? If this fails, whatever happens. At least that's the process I go through. We could do the same tabletop exercise with application behavior. I think um, that's one thing that comes to my mind. Yeah, there's a there's a great like experience in my past um, where an organization was trying to create remote access for their users, and this was back before there was a lot of um, web-based portals or web-based access. Everything was through VPN and and you had to be on the network to access the application. And um, basically four or five different teams had sort of worked together to come up with a solution. But what happened is each team built their piece in their own little world, like the network people built a VPN. And so the end user had to log into the VPN with one mechanism. And then there was um, the application that the user had to launch, which had its own credentials that were different. And then there was the security key that the security team required them to do, which had a dongle and three other different things. And, and by the time the user actually got to the system, the login process was like five or 10 minutes. And this was in a healthcare setting with users who are seeing patients and not the most patient with their technology because they want to be doing their jobs and what had happened is we designed all these discrete parts for each of the teams doing the work and didn't think about what the end user experience was holistically. And, and so, you know, finally, somebody went down and was like, okay, show me why this is so bad. Because people are saying it shouldn't be that big a deal. You just do this, this, and then you're there. And they're like, well, yeah, that's what those people say. But then I have to do this and this and this and this. And by the time you documented that whole process, it was like, oh, <laughs> We need to think about this differently, and and that's in a nutshell. We do that a yeah, lot. No, no. So I so I'll give you no. I'll give you I'll give you a specific example that I think of quite often, which is that I must connect to a VPN to get to my corporate network. Well, that's not a big deal for me because I'm a network guy, right? I know how to do this. It's easy. Blah blah blah. But if I were the average salesperson sitting in a customer office and trying to get to some price list or something, and I had to connect to a VPN constantly to get into the corporate network to do stuff, I think I would find it rather frustrating after a while. Why not just do TLS or something like that and just have the application itself exposed to the internet? Yeah, that's harder from a network perspective because now I have to harden the, the application. Now I have to put it on a server and I have to think about what kind, of, what kind of attacks I could have, what that does to my attack surface and stuff like that. But if I'm going to advocate for my user and my user is somebody out there who makes the money that makes me a paycheck, then maybe I need to get the network out of the way in this particular case. And so that just seems to me like one of those classic examples of what you're talking about there, Yvonne, with, you know, there's only one step or one extra step or whatever, but that, it's still, it's an extra step. <laughs> it's still an extra step. Well, so, and sometimes we just want to own it because we want to own it. Um, I've seen that happen. Oh, yes. Too. Like we want our we like our capes. We want our team to be in the middle of everything because it makes us feel like we have value and and purpose and meaning and all of those things. And instead of looking at it, go, you know what? We don't 
the way we would say it in Kentucky is we don't have a dog in this fight. You know, like we just don't have anything to do here. And it's best if we step back and observe uh, and offer commentary when we have something valuable. But no, like this isn't, this is something that needs to be fixed by the application team. Let's not try to fix it in the network. Um, and there's a, there's a right. lot of as much value knowing when you don't need to be involved as being appropriately involved when it's time. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and arguing for someone else's simplicity, even though you're not the person, as you said, you don't have a dog in the fight, right? I don't have a dog in the fight of whether they have to launch a VPN or not. I can just build the VPN. But still, they're my user. That's their perception of my product just as much as is anybody else's product. They still see me as part of IT. So, you know, maybe I need to think about those things. So, Tom, you look like you're just on the edge there of saying something. <laughs> no, I, I not really. <laughs> not really. <laughs> so are there any other examples of that kind of thing where we could say, you know, we need to think about like from an application developer's perspective, right? How can we make it easier for them to consume the network? Not just the end user, but the application developer. How can we make it easier for them to consume the network? How can we make it easier for the for the CTO? to consume knowledge about the network so that they know how much they need to buy and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, rather than expecting, you know, whatever else, expecting us to do everything or whatever it is. I don't know. Those, those are things I think we need to think about though, uh, when we go about our daily, just getting things done. So Brian, any other comments or thoughts on this quote? Um, I think we've hit all of the comments that I have. I'm still thinking about uh, hoping that somebody would slide a pizza under my door like Tom suggested. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking, nobody, you know, I've never been locked in a room and had pizza slid under my door. But now that now that Yvonne's going to have a she shed, we could all go to her house and order pizzas and have them slid under the door of the she shed so that she can finish all of her work. That sounds like a, oh, I, was, yeah. I was thinking about a getting slot. a screen door that's got a doggy door in it. Um, and maybe we could just make it a pizza slot instead. Make it a pizza slot. <laughs> so, um, I was having some latency issues, but one of the things I was thinking about when, when Russ was talking a moment ago is that we really, we have long tried to do too much in the network. And I really believe that over the next 10 years, the network needs to be about fast, reliable, packet delivery. And, and we get the packets from point A to point B. The security happens higher up the stack. Um, with TLS 1.3, a lot of the inspection we do at the security level doesn't apply anymore. It's very difficult to decrypt or do any kind of man-in-the-middle stuff. And so we have, we have almost taken on too much. And so I think if, it, as, as I would think about a network would look like in the future, it's much more service provider-esque than what we think of a traditional enterprise. And that is fast, reliable packet delivery, full stop. And I think that um, would not only simplify, but but at the end of the day, provide better value to our customers and the business. You know, what that makes me think of, Yvonne, I was um, listening to something, somebody was talking about service mesh in um, Kubernetes and um, the whole I'm, idea. I'm so that, sorry, that, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't really care about service mesh, but the, um, the person talking was saying that uh, the 
whole idea with microservices is it's not really a, a machine problem. It's scaling the humans problem, right? If you if you divide up the application into into microservices, then a lot more people can work on the machine at a time, theoretically. And um, that idea, I just that what you were saying there, Yvonne, just made me think of if, if you know if we can design things such that more people can work independently. I think we we potentially end up with a better infrastructure. And the way to one way to do that is to say for network people, we're packet plumbers. We're going to put all our effort into getting your getting your packets delivered. And then if some you know somebody else needs to solve the problem of of segmentation, perhaps, or, 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 you know, overlay or whatever. Um, but, but we're going to focus and do a great job at delivering packets. I, I agree with that. Or may, or maybe we need to provide the services and allow people to use the services, you know, so that we're not just delivering packets. We're also delivering a set of services with those packets, but we're not the ones actually configuring and managing the services. We're just providing Right. Right. So I don't, I don't necessarily provide segmentation on the network. I just give you the ability to build segments. You, you know, you're an application developer. You want to build a segment, please be my guest. I I'm out of your way. I'm not here configuring it for you, figuring out which host or servers it needs to go to or anything else. You take care of all that. It's just a service I provide. Um, I think we do far too little of that sort of attitude. And we want to take control. Like Yvonne said, we want to be, we want to be in control. And my pizza. <laughs> it's definitely my pizza. <laughs> it's definitely my pizza. So, Brian, you're going to jump in there, I think. No, I'm good. No? Okay. All right. So, I think we've hit everything unless, uh, Tom, anything else? Nope. Okay. Anything else, Brian? All right. Yvonne? I'm good. I'm good. Good? All right. Good. All right. So, Tom, where can people get in touch with you? You're blog is still not it's out there but have you actually posted anything no baby steps for us <laughs> baby steps <laughs> got the got the platform i've got the whole like pipeline but there's no content in i it think yet, so. i think you owe yvonne a, a pizza so <laughs> i'm pretty sure i do <laughs> so you can find me on linkedin and uh twitter at tom ammon okay brian i think you have a blog right yeah, I think I've uh, actually published something since we last spoke. Is there anything interesting? <laughs> nope, no. Nope. I just posted that I was on the last episode of The Hedge. So. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, and you're on LinkedIn and on Twitter as well? Yes, I am. All right, good. What's your Twitter handle in case people want to get in touch with you? Uh, Vietse. Okay, I'm not going to try to... Spell that. People can find you. And Yvonne, Yvonne now has a blog at Yvonne Sharp dot, what is it? It is esharp.net. Esharp.net. Okay. I didn't, I can remember what your yep. TLD was. Esharp.net. Yep. Yeah. 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 It's, it's esharp.net and you can find me on Twitter at Sharp Network where you're going to see pictures periodically of the She Shed as I build out my new office. And, uh, yeah, and you can also find me on LinkedIn. Awesome. All right, I'm Russ White. You can find me at rule11.tech, LinkedIn. Don't PM me on Twitter because I probably won't answer. So thanks for joining us for this episode of The Hedge, and we'll catch you next time. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.